If you want a wildly healthy, naturally disease-resistant pet who turns heads and starts conversations with awestruck onlookers, you're right where you belong. This is the Vital Animal Podcast with your host, homeopathic veterinarian, Dr. Will Falconer. Welcome, everyone, from wherever you're joining us. This is the Vital Animal Podcast, and it is my special privilege to introduce to you one of my mentors today. This is Dr. Richard Pitcairn, who will be interviewing, and particularly about the realm of vaccines and viruses. Welcome, Richard. Yes, thank you very much. Glad to have you here. It's an honor. You're, um, you've always had an interest in animals, have you, or did that come later in life? No, I would say it started when I was a child. Um, I, without necessarily going into my family dynamic, shall we say that I found it um, rewarding to relate to animals. And I, I grew up in Los Angeles, a big city. So most of the animals I related with were dogs and cats and birds and some horses and things like that. I used to raise hamsters and raise parakeets. And- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found a, a similar thing in my growing up was like they, they were a real important part because I was an oops kid, I think, and, and pretty lonely until the animals came along into my life. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think it, for me, it was also a factor of loneliness, being somewhat isolated in a way. So, yeah, so I am. I got. I related. Started relating to animals very early on, indeed. And share with us a bit about your educational background, Richard, because uh, I'm I'm calling on you to talk about vaccines and viruses today for a reason. Yeah, I I went pretty straightforwardly through school. I'm by that I mean I went through of course, my basic education through high school. And then I went immediately to college. Um, and I, I entered a school in Los Angeles that was Loyola University, um, and it, presu- presumably uh, starting a pre-vet program. And uh, it, it sounds kind of silly, but I wasn't, I was too naive to know they didn't have a pre-vet. So I was pre-med for a year. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, then I went up to Washington, to um, University of California, Davis, up by Sacramento. And I was my second year there uh, in pre-vet now. But uh, then I entered vet school after that, the third year, and that was, which was kind of remarkable. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it seems like kind of one of those things that was, in a sense, maybe destined, if you want to put it that way, um, because there were a lot of, a lot of people applying to get into veterinary school. It was, it was popular. Yes. And uh, so I was one, but then I'd only done two years of pre-vet and a lot of people applying had done three or four. So I didn't know if I would get in or not, but I did apply. And strangely enough, I was accepted, but I had not taken um, organic chemistry, I guess it was. Well, one of the chemistries, I guess it was organic. I hadn't met that requirement. So so I was accepted into veterinary school if if in the following summer I would take that program, mm. <laughs> which I did down, down at uh, UCLA. Wow. And I got an A, and so I got into vet school. <laughs> so I went right on through uh, four years of vet school, and then I went right into practice. 
um, Southern California, um, down near San Bernardino in that area, a little town called Rialto. And uh, I was in a practice that was called a mixed practice, which meant that we treated just about anything that moved that wasn't human. (laughs) And uh, we treated uh, farm animals and horses and pigs and sheep and dogs and cats. And there was even a traveling circus there that I would treat those animals. Occasionally, we treat a tiger. (laughs) (laughs) So that was very interesting. Uh, I did that for two years. And... um, the, however, I, I became somewhat, um, uh, what, I don't know what word to use, somewhat disappointed or or um, dis, um, disenchanted, maybe. May, maybe that's a, a better word. I don't know. But I felt like I wasn't getting the results that sort of had been told to me I would get in school, if you follow me. Yes. I tried my best, but it didn't seem like some animals would improve, but not as much as I wanted them to. And so I, um, being, you know, a good race, a good Catholic boy, I, I made the obvious assumption that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> so I, I uh, investigated and got the opportunity to go up, get a job up at uh, Washington State University in Washington. And I, entered, I actually joined them on the faculty. And, <clears throat> and while I was there, I taught public health epidemiology and public health. So we, I taught epidemics, which is kind of relevant today, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so I taught for the, the veterinary, in the veterinary program about infectious diseases and epidemics and public health and all that stuff. So that was interesting. And then um, as part of the program, I, for without further charge, I was able to take um, a certain number of units and I took virology, study of viruses. Uh, and I took that for a year. Uh, and it was very, I found it very interesting. I got a good grade in it because I just found it really fascinating to learn all that detail about viruses. And uh, we had a lab. We grow viruses in the lab as well as lecture. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and interestingly, uh, the way it went was I, I didn't really have too much, uh, I, I don't know how you, how, how it would relate to you, but I didn't have much ambition. I was just interested in things. And so uh, as the year drew to a close, um, I approached my virology professor and I said, "Um, this is really interesting. I really enjoy it. Is there anything else I could take? And he responded with, uh, well, I don't know. I'll check into it. And I I thought that was kind of odd. since he didn't seem to know if he was going to have a class or not, you know, Uh, I I was thinking next year, you know, next semester. So anyway, I went back to my office in the other building and uh, I think it was the next day or two days later, the head of the microbiology department came down and said, you're in. I said, in what? (laughs) (laughs) And they 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 offered me, a full-time postgraduate PhD program with a salary. Wow. NIH, NIH program, they called it, where you got money, not a whole lot, but enough to live on. Uh-huh. And I, I could enter a full-time program. So I said, why not? Sure. Wow. So I entered uh, the, the study of microbiology. It was primarily viruses. And then it kind of moved into more studying the immune system. That's where my research focused was studying growing 
for several years, I grew tissue culture in labs and I studied immune reactions and interferon and that kind of stuff. So I did that and uh, it was very, very interesting. Um, what was your thesis on? Well, it was kind of, basically it was studying how cell cells from different individual bodies could recognize each other. Huh. It was, they're called histocompatibility antigens. You've probably heard of that. Oh, yeah. And it's like certain structures in the cell and the, one cell recognizes the other as foreign, which is why they have trouble with organ grafts. You know, the, the body says, no, it's not me. Get out, yeah. get the hell out. Yeah, yeah. And so I studied that kind of thing. I combined them in culture and see what happened and go on. So anyway, uh, I, I then, um, I went through the sixties there and I, I took off a year at, at the point where I was writing my thesis and lived in a teepee and traveled a bit, but ended up finishing the program. And then doing research. And along the way, uh, studying the immune system, I came across some research articles I read in the library where the, the authors of the article were working with children in Africa. Mm. And they were describing how nutrition really made a difference in their immunity. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's wonderful because uh, you, you can relate to that going through a program like that there's a lot of information about the immune system, but there was almost nothing about how you could make it work better. How about, yeah. It was, yeah, it was more like how it could go wrong and, you know, how it worked and so on. So this is the first thing I saw where they actually were talking about making it function better. Oh. I got very interested in that, and I, I really wanted to study it more. Um, there really wasn't any research funding for that kind of thing uh, to apply for, so I ended up going back into practice. To, to apply it. Uh-huh. And that's how I started, uh, investigating the effects of nutrition on animals I was treating, uh, which eventually led to a, my wife and I doing a book on it, on natural care with recipes and things. Yes. And and along the way, I was also looking at other ways of treatment. Uh, different, I looked, I, I looked, checked out a lot of Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbal medicine, polarity therapy, color therapy, on and on. And I came across homeopathy, and I really, um, I, I somehow related to it. I saw it as being very scientific. It really seemed to somewhat relate to what I'd studied. And I, anyway, that's where my interest started. That seriously started in 1978. So since that time, 78, um, my main focus of practice and interest was homeopathy and nutrition. And eventually I had, a t for about 20 years, a practice in Oregon that offered only those two things for treatment. Very busy practice with three vets. I remember, yeah, you, you had a you had a lot of business going on long distance and locally as well. Yeah, exactly. It was very interesting work. I learned a lot. Well one of the one of the reasons I I, I asked you to come on was recognizing this background in both um, viruses and in the immune system. So uh, you were the one who opened my eyes to the fact that vaccines have a significant impact on health. And mm -hmm. I didn't really know this until I studied in the in the first professional course in veterinary homeopathy back in 91, 92 with you. And as we, as we discussed it and it carried over into <clears throat> dinner dinner conversation and, you know, uh, colleagues amongst us, 
it became apparent that I was one of the few that wasn't really up to speed on that. So it was an eye opener for me. And it changed my practice outlook, changed my practice entirely, and came to study it more closely. So one of the things I wanted to go over with you was just explaining a little bit about some of these basics about like first, what the heck is a virus? We're we're in this time of pandemic now, and we're thinking there's a virus running around called SARS-CoV-2, and we're admonished to wear masks, et cetera, et cetera. And so what are these things called viruses? We, we deal with parvo and distemper and rabies and things like that in our animal practices, but who are these little guys? Yeah, well, uh, I'll answer that in conventional terms. If that's all right. Sure. Although, in other words, the way virologists would talk about it. Sure. Um, because we have a slightly different angle from homeopathy and other methods. But um, we're talking about microorganisms. And microorganisms are basically single cell. Well, I'm using the word loosely. Single cell organisms. We humans and animals and plants are multi-cell. Like the human body has something like 30 trillion cells in it. Right. And a trillion is a million million. So you can see there's an awful lot of cells, and they're all organized into a, a much a more extensive function and structure. Right. But these um, these microorganisms are just one cell. That's what a bacteria is. A bacteria is like a human cell, only it lives by itself. And it's got a little covering over it. It's got otherwise pretty much the same machinery as we do in our cells. Same for a fungus. And then there's other types of organisms like mycoplasma and so on we don't need to get into. But there's a, you know, you can imagine there's a lot of different kinds. Sure. Um, when you come to viruses, um, they're, uh, they're somewhat unique. <clears throat> um, first, uh, let me go back to bacteria. If we talk about infections, and I should say first that 99.99% of the microorganisms out there do not cause disease or illness. That's important to understand. That is really. It's a very, very small fraction. And why that's so would be an interesting question, but we won't go into that. So um, they scientists have found that our body, talking about the human body, there's more microorganisms in our bodies than there are human cells. This is normal. Yes. We're, we're a, a combination colony. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite amazing. So anyway, these bacteria, let's talk about that as, because people are familiar with bacteria. If, if, if one was going to cause illness by getting into the body, it grows uh, just like the cells grow, it, it grows inside the tissues and because all the tissues have fluid around them from the blood, mm -hmm. fluid, and so tissue fluid. So they grow in there and they eat the food that's available and some of the cells get killed if the bacteria secrete something that's poisonous to them and so on. And they compete for the food, you know, so that's where you get symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um and bacteria, they grow very rapidly. They they reproduce about every twenty minutes. So you can see how fast that they would they they would develop. So that's kind of understandable because you say, well, they're like human cells, only they're sort of independent and and do their own thing. Right. 
viruses are different in that they're more of specifically adapted to growing inside human or animal cells or plant cells. So, um, less independent. To explain that, let me back. Yeah, so let, let me back up a little bit and say, for those that don't know or don't remember, that the way the cell, whether it be a bacteria or a human cell or an animal cell, whatever, the way that it reproduces itself is that there's a nucleic acid we call DNA that, um, you know, basically copies itself and then produces the proteins and other material that's needed to divide the cell into two pieces, right? Two cells, right. daughter cells. Right. And that's the way bacteria grow. And the, the process involves the um, functioning of that nucleic acid. That's what runs the show. So viruses take advantage of that. Viruses have adapted to where what they are compared to a bacteria is just simply a strand of nucleic acid with a coat around it. Hmm. Very, very simple. The best way to think about them is that the, the vir- when we talk about the virus, this particle, think of it like a little seed, like a seed you plant in the ground. Uh-huh. It's just a little seed ready to go as soon as it gets in the right soil. Uh-huh. So when it gets into the body, it has the ability to travel uh, to the particular cells it wants to grow in through recognition of where you know, the surface molecules. And it, then it enters into the cell, goes into it, basically takes over the machinery. And instead of the human cell or the animal cell growing its own daughter cell, now it grows the virus. Uh-huh. So, so the nucleic acid of the virus now reproduces itself through using the cell that's invaded. And it not, not it producing just a copy, but thousands and thousands of copies. Uh-huh. And viruses are not all the same in, in exactly the details of how they go, but basically, eventually, the cell falls apart. Sometimes the viruses butt out to the surface and take off through the blood. Sometimes the cell bursts open. It depends on the kind of virus and so on. But basically, the pathway is to get into the cell, take it over, produce you know a huge number of copies, and then take off from there and get into other cells. Uh-huh. So they're really kind of unique organisms, aren't they? Yeah, like no other. Yeah, like no other. It's really quite amazing that they've adapted that way. So um, that makes it that makes it um, a little bit more of a challenge in a way for our bodies to deal with it. They can, our bodies can deal with it, but it's a little different. You know, if you have a bacterial infection, there's a bacteria out there in the tissue fluid. Um, and, and the cells that we have in our body that are protective, you know, different, uh, what we call white cells, but they're, I won't go into all the different names, but there's different kinds of cells. Their job is to come in and make sure no invaders get in, basically. Right. And so they, they can spot the bacteria. There it is. You know, go get it and eat it. Uh, but viruses are tough that way because they're inside the cell. Right. So for for the body to recognize it and deal with it, it has it has learned how to recognize that the cell has a virus in it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. Without it, look, it looks, yeah. we'd be in trouble without that recognition, wouldn't we? 
We would, because there'd be no way to deal with it, you see. So so the cell uh, is altered by the virus. Sometimes the viruses, when they're growing in the cell, they're producing particular proteins that come out onto the surface of the cell. And when the virus comes out, it just kind of wraps itself around that. So the the cell the cell surface now is being changed, and the body's learned how to recognize that. So now, when it deals with it as a defense, it's different than it is with the bacteria, where these um, particular types of cells come in and basically eat eat the virus. I mean, eat the bacteria, mm-hmm. take it in and digest it. Instead, there are cells that attach some or come in contact with the cells that have the virus in them and and tell that cell to to dissolve. Aha. Uh-huh. So it's really it's an interesting mechanism, you know. It's uh, it's really uh, the 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 way we think of the immune system when we're talking about it these days where we're talking about antibodies and that sort of thing. That particular development of the immune system um, started about 700 million years ago. Mm. So it's been around a long time, and it's really developed itself into a very sophisticated, extraordinary system. If you get into it, you know, it's 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 not simple. And it's, and I mean, I can give you simple uh, analogies, but when the details of all the different things it can do, it's really amazing. You know, it's obviously the body's very intelligent. Yeah. And and at the same time, so is the virus. The virus also adapts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, yeah, that's how it's amazing. It's amazing to me that we've we've co-evolved with these guys for 700 million years, basically. We've, we've tempered and learned from, you know, disease organisms, viruses, bacteria, et cetera. We've gotten better and better at catching them internally with our immune systems and they also have evolved over these millions of years yeah. to be more um to do their job better to survive better so it's a it's a natural selection sort of a thing it sounds like it is and that, that's that's one way you can put it another way i think that might make it understandable is to say that the uh, if i can put it like this that that each has a purpose our human bodies have a purpose, which is to stay healthy, right? If there's something that invades it. Mm-hmm. And the virus has a purpose, which is to grow and reproduce itself. Right. Okay. Now, it's it's not in the virus's best interest to invade a body and then kill it. Exactly. Because now it can't grow. Exactly. It can't grow. It has no home. So, yeah. So, the very best situation for a virus is to be able to grow in there and cause very little upset. And that's the way they evolved usually. Uh, probably that's the way a lot of them that live there now normally got to be harmless. Yes. You know, eventually they just they grow in there and it's no big deal. We have plenty of food for them. So they grow and they're happy and we don't mind. Right. In fact, they even have some kind of functions. Some of the, you know, we talk about the microbiome now. Right. right. Heard that term. Yes. So, um, so it's all worked out very well in that respect. But uh, what I want to emphasize is that the viruses that cause disease don't have an evil purpose necessarily, like they want to kill us. What they want to do is grow and reproduce themselves. Sure. And the ones that are most successful are the ones that are able to grow for some time. 
So the best best situation for them is if they could grow in a body for months, say. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that that as you said before is like natural selection. So in other words, as a person adapts to it in such a way that they tolerate the virus being there and the virus isn't causing too much trouble, everybody's happy. Right. And so it, it evolves into a, a, a satisfactory relationship. The body has ways of also eliminating the virus, and it tries to do that. And, of course, the virus in turn is trying to find a way to get around the defense and stay there. Mm -hmm. So there's always that dynamic, back and forth, back and forth. Um, For a lot of these ones that we think of as causing disease now, you know, like um, uh, flu or or rabies or whatever it is, um, those kind of diseases generally are eradicated by the immune system. Because they just cause too much trouble, so um, that, you know that and that's a, a something we can go into if you want. But the, the immune system has the ability to basically eliminate these organisms. Uh huh. It's learned how to do that. So let me let me just hit on one thing that you covered, which is I think really important for us all to understand is that we are living with these things for millennia and viruses and bacteria are 99.9% normal get-along-with-us species. They don't cause us death and disease, correct? That's, that's correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a, be- a great, great, great multitude. Very, very few, very, very small percentage cause any trouble. Yeah. And sometimes it's because of other factors. I don't know if we have time to get into all that, but you know, it really brings in the question of susceptibility. Right. You know, that, that ordinarily, let's say, and under natural conditions, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't even notice it. Exactly. That it comes in. Exactly. But then if for some reason we get weakened or sick from something else, now maybe we're susceptible in a way that we do get quite ill. That's the problem. Yes. That's important in the, today's situation because it's pretty much being ignored that question of susceptibility right right so that's what our practices have evolved to support is susceptibility right we we learned early on nutrition plays a big role and having clean yes. clean living you know cleaned up the the uh, scourges of old for people when they separated sewage water from drinking water lo and behold you know a lot of these diseases just went away correct Yes, but then I, I, I'm sorry it's so complicated, but also we have to acknowledge that unfortunately, uh, the way our culture has gone is that pollution of that sort has increased rather than decreased. True. Uh, we know we have a lot of air pollution, but especially having to do with food. Now, one, one example, if you're not familiar with it, is that. <clears throat> And I'm speaking for the United States, that we have, um, our, our government has approved the use of 100,000 chemicals. My goodness. In, for, yeah, 100,000 <laughs> in agriculture, medicine, industry, and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, a great number of these chemicals. Uh, as you as you might guess, you know, like say you go down and you buy something to clean your house or treat your yard or paint or whatever, or, or medicines that you take, 
a lot of those things end up down the sink, right? Mm -hmm. And also along with other, you know, waste products. And uh, those waste products then uh, in most places, towns and cities, end up in a sewage treatment plant. And what the sewage treatment plants do is that they um, they have what they call a settling pond. You've heard of this, of course, where they settle out the solids, supposedly. Right. That whatever finally goes to the bottom. Right. And then the liquid part, they supposedly treat, um, you know, and release it back into the streams or the waterway or something. Um, unfortunately, they only test for 10 substances. So the other, you know, um, 990,000 <laughs> they don't look for. Uh-huh. So, but putting that aside, what I want to emphasize to you is that the solid part that settles down, it's called sewage sludge, that um, they didn't know what to do with it. There was so much of it. Right. This is some years ago. Let's go back a few decades. You've heard of this? Milorganite, for example. Um. I don't know. What was the word? Milorganite was the Milwaukee sewage sludge that they packaged and sold to gardeners for years. Well, there's more than that, unfortunately. So what happened was that the the government, USDA, I guess it was, um, as a way of dealing with it, had a contest for people to rename (laughs) the sewage sludge. Oh, no. Seriously, they offered money. Oh, God. And and the, the winner of the contest... Um, was the word biosolids, mm. biosolids. Yeah. So they renamed sewage sludge biosolids, and then they legally approved the use of it on food crops Wow, for fertilizer. Wow. And that's what's been, been doing done for decades. So when people go down and they buy non-organic food for themselves or for their animals, they're buying food that was fertilized. It can be, not all food was, but it can be fertilized with sewage sludge. Mm which had thousands of chemicals in it. So that was why in our book, uh, fourth edition of our book that my wife and I wrote, we put a lot of emphasis on this about changing the food sources because now you're finding so many chemicals that are accumulating in animals right. in an environment. It's, I think that's a major cause now for a lot of chronic diseases we see. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the byproducts or the uh, sewage sludge may be sterile, but uh, certainly they didn't clean out all those hundreds of thousands of uh, chemicals. Good point. No, no. And then you have GMO and, you know, on and on. We can go into that. It's a big topic. But um, but you get the idea that it's like what's happened is it's gotten more contaminated right. in the environment. So, right. And so, you know, another way, another angle on that would be to say, let's say that we have a population that on the one hand, let's say we, we, you know, suppositionally, we had a population that was very, very healthy, had really excellent food, fresh air, exercise, you know, good, good living conditions. And so they, were, they had a, a healthy condition and, and a strong immune system. And along comes, say, the flu virus. And maybe it affects a few, but not very many. Mm-hmm. And it's not considered a big deal. It's shrugged off, you know, okay. Now, you compare that, say, to a population that the food is contaminated with chemicals, and there's air pollution, and there's GMO, and there's all this other stuff, right? Right. And so they're they're not very healthy. They're quite susceptible now to having their health disturbed. And along comes the same virus. 
And this time now, the virus causes more serious and, and more common illness. Yes. So what do we? So what do we do? We blame the virus. Right. Right. Interestingly, they of taking responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. For our, our planetary damage that we've been doing for so long. That we've been doing. Exactly. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, I don't know if you ran into Dr. Zach Bush, but he he identified the hot spots of air pollution and overlaid that map with the hot spots for the SARS COVID disease. And boy, there was a huge overlap. Mm. So the Northern Italy wow. experience, wow. Wuhan was the number one worst air pollution on the planet. And they also had the highest level of Roundup or glyphosate in their area because they oh. just freely used it. So not surprising. Wow. <laughs> it fits right into what you're saying. Um, you know, they, they were yeah. primed to get that disease worse than anybody. And Northern Italy followed there was, suit. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, there's a, speaking of Roundup, there was a study done, I don't know if it was a year or two years ago. I forget the date. Uh, there was a, re- a research report that they uh, checked Roundup in the bodies of people in the United States. Ninety-eight percent have browned up in their bodies. Yes, and ninety-eight percent. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal, isn't it? You wonder how we're it how is. we're functioning. Well, that's the point. That's what I'm saying here is that we have to factor this in. I mean, if we give a lot of attention to say, oh, you know, this virus is so bad, blaming the virus, blaming China, saying we have to wear masks and all this stuff, instead of looking at the fact that we're We've created a condition where we're susceptible to it mm-hmm. and not dealing with that. In fact, making it worse, right? right. Because now we're se- separating people. They're losing their jobs. They're getting depressed. Yeah. They're getting lonely. Yeah. They're, they're, they can't go out and walk in the sunlight anymore. They can't exercise. Right. You see, it's just the opposite of what we should be doing. Exactly. Yeah. What Richard has just revealed here, I think, is worth pausing and considering for a moment. We were talking about immunity and how the the healthy body is naturally immune and susceptibility, which can be affected by, guess what, 100,000 approved chemicals in our agriculture, industry, et cetera, medicine, et cetera. So when we consider the amount of toxicity that we're dealing with, you can imagine that susceptibility will be greatly increased. So this seems a perfect time to point out that my sister company, VitalPetHealth.com, in addition to our main product, Canine Immune Complete, we have also created a very useful supplement called Vital Animal Detox. This was the brainchild of Dr. Scott Treadway, my partner who knows Ayurveda like I know homeopathy. And he's brought into this product some very valuable things, not only from Ayurveda, things like Andrographis and Bacopa and Ashwagandha and Tulsi, but the very purified zeolite molecule, which is a naturally occurring one that has long been known to do an amazing job of pulling out toxins from the body. It's even been used in the environment in a less pure form. So using a daily supplement of Vital Animal Detox, along with boosting immunity with Canine Immune Complete, is a a great daily double, you can say, to keep your animal's susceptibility low and vital health very, very high. 
please visit us at vitalpethealth.com and get yours today. Let's get back to my interview now with Dr. Richard Pitcairn. Well, I wanted to, um, in this first session, maybe just leave people with a uh, two things, I guess. A, a, a picture of how the immune system protects us mm-hmm. best as it can with these given conditions. And second, um, just maybe leave the door open for how a vaccine is purported to work, and we can maybe pick up that thread in another visit. So first, how how do our immune systems keep us protected from these bad guys that are 0.1% of the, of the whole of the viruses and bacteria that are out there that could harm us? Yeah, there's a... There's several different um, aspects to it. The most important one are the little cells. Um, They're they're, uh, basically what we call white blood cells. And you know the word macrophage. That's the term that's used Mm -hmm. for it. And there are millions and millions of them that are in position watching. And what I mean by in position is that they're just inside the... The, the lining, the tissue lining um, from between our body and the outside. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. Because <clears throat> we know that there, there's the skin and we say, okay, what's outside the skin is obviously not inside the body. <laughs> but the skin, mm-hmm. the skin part um, of our bodies, the surface area is really fairly small um, when you lay it out. However, the way most of these organisms get in is not through the skin, but through the nose, the through the mouth and the intestines and the bladder and vagina and so on, all these other uh, places. And those other places in our body that have openings to the outside uh, have a lining that uh, is protective, but also just lines the opening and the cavities inside. But all of those tissue linings in there are not flat like the skin. They're all wrinkled and pouched. And, uh, for example, they, they have estimated, scientists have, have said that the, for a human being, the average human being, the total area, if you lay all that out flat, all those different parts like the intestines and the lungs and the nose and everything, if you follow me, if you laid it mm-hmm. all out flat, it would be equal to two tennis courts. Wow. So that's, Amazing. that's where these organisms get in is through those linings. Well, behind the linings are these millions and millions of little cells sitting there waiting for lunch. <laughs> so when organisms get through, whether it's bacteria, viruses, whatever it is, splinters, whatever, they're there to recognize it immediately and eat it. And um, that process of those cells they're, they're considered, they're, they're the primary defense we have. And those, uh-huh. those cells uh, handle probably 90% or more, 95% presumed infection. So when people say exposed to a virus and they don't get sick, it's because these cells have simply gobbled them up. And the virus has never uh-huh. gone anywhere. You see? Uh-huh. So that's the first defense. Then if the bacteria or the virus somehow is able to get past that defense, maybe there's a large number of them, or maybe 
somehow, you know, that the individual's not healthy, doesn't have enough of the cells there or something. Then those organisms go further in, they get into the tissue fluid and on their way to the blood, they drain down through what, you know, you know, as uh, lymph fluid and mm-hmm. they get into lymph nodes. And there again, they meet all these different kinds. I won't go into all the kinds of cells that are there, but there's other cells that have the job of recognizing and eating in the same way. So these, these mm-hmm. little organisms have a lot of things to get past. I mean, it's not easy for them. If they are right. really, for whatever reason, really lucky and able to do it, they eventually end up getting into the blood, and that's how they spread into the parts of the body they want to grow in. But most of them, 99.99% of them can't get that far. They just don't get there. So the thing uh-huh. that I want to emphasize here, what I've described so far about them trying to get in, not able to get as far as the blood, um, if those kind of infections happen, you don't get sick and you don't necessarily have any develop any immunity. It's not necessary. Uh-huh. You see, you just dealt with it, period. Uh-huh. So, but let's say it gets past that but for whatever reason. And it starts to cause, you know, starts to get into cells and cause symptoms. Then there are other cells and also different chemicals in the blood and so on that come in to deal with that. As I described very briefly about cells recognized for a virus that the cell has been infected and dissolves it and so on. Mm-hmm. But the thing that, the thing that's, um, I want to emphasize is that the, the, those initial cells I mentioned that were just inside the lining, Mm-hmm. One of the things they do, amazingly, is when they get these little organisms, and if there's enough of them, they they know, <laughs> they're you know, like their little conscious beings is the way I'm putting it, they know there's enough of them to be a threat. Then what they do, believe it or not, is they take little pieces of the virus or the bacteria that they've eaten, and they travel through the blood to other parts of the body where there are other cells there. And hand them over and say, here, make antibodies against these. Aha. Uh-huh. So that's what that's how that works. So if the virus the virus or bacteria is going to be enough of an infection to be an issue, it calls into effect in what we call the antibody system. And the it's important to know that it's not the primary defense, it's secondary. It only uh-huh. comes, it only comes into into action if the first the primary system has failed and so the secondary system is called in it's not real fast it takes about a week or two to to get to the point where it's producing antibodies and the antibodies then um, that are uh, are are helper molecule what they do is they're released into the blood they themselves don't necessarily do anything to the bacteria or the virus um, but they combine with it, and that gives it a little, like a little signal, a little flag to other cells. Hey, look at this is not right. Eat me. Uh-huh. So they work with the other cells still, the primary system. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, some antibodies will combine with the virus and prevent it from getting into cells. But again, there's a, there's a lot of complexity in different ways we could talk about it. The thing I want to emphasize is that the immune system where there's antibodies is really a, a secondary system when everything else has failed. And then when you get yeah. into viruses, 
the, the antibody-producing system is rather unimportant, relatively speaking. What's needed for antivirus is what's called killer T-cells. You've heard of that, killer cells. Mm-hmm. They don't produce antibody. They go out as cells. They've learned how to recognize the virus, and they travel to the blood and then take care of the virus-infected cells directly. That's the primary way that virus infections are handled. You don't hear much about it, and there's a lot of emphasis on antibody production because they don't have any way of measuring these other cells. Right. So they emphasize the antibody part, which is really relatively minor. In fact, in some Uh, situations, they've shown it has almost no role in virus infections. Interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So it's really news to me that the, the, the primary defense most often is not even considered part of the immune response. It may not even trigger the immune response per se. They're just working at the surface and things go their way. We're, we're quiet about it. Yes. In fact, a wow. great number of organisms on this planet don't have that secondary system. Uh-huh. Yet they manage fine. Uh-huh. So what happens then when we, in our logic of studying this immune system, which I, I let me just get your opinion on this. I, I know we've learned lots and lots more about the immune system as the years have gone by, but what fraction of it do you think we really understand, Richard? Well, that's a good question. Let me think a moment. There is a lot of detail about the kinds of cells that are involved and what they do and what kind of material they secrete and what's on the surface. But I think that probably there's still probably a great body of knowledge that we don't yet quite have quite grasped, you know? Um, but mm-hmm. part of it, part of it's not just, um, I, I'm just thinking it through as I talk to you. Some of us is the physical aspects, you know, there are, I know that there are places where they, when you study uh, books on the immune system, they'll say this part hasn't been understood yet. You know, there are Mm -hmm. places where they Mm -hmm. just don't quite understand how the cells do that. Um, I could give you examples, but it's complicated and it would take a while, so we won't go there. But, you know, there's some really amazing things the body does that just would not be obvious at all. Uh, unless, unless you got into it and saw what it was actually doing and think, oh my God, how's it do that? You know? So there's, yeah, there's a yeah. lot that's not understood. But there's also, I think, in a larger context, there's a whole question of how the immune system functions within the whole organism. We have to bring in then the, how does consciousness affect it? You know, mm-hmm. how, how does our attitudes and expectations and what about stress? Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these other things, mm-hmm. immune systems involved in all that is part of what we are. And so sure. that's that I think is a whole area that has yet to be fully explored. I think one part of it that's that's just coming to light lately is the microbiome's effect on the immune system, right? And how that can change with stress and how that can change with emotion and affect emotion. It's yeah. like a two-way street. Yes, yes, exactly. Very interesting stuff. So let me just see. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazingly complex thing, and here it's evolved over millennia. And um, my sense has always been that we have a, a certain amount of um, pride about knowing, you know. And and I think 
the odds are that we're probably more ignorant than we admit. <laughs> well, you're, you know, and I, I, th- I think we understand a lot more about the immune system than we did, you know, say in the 1920s or something, granted. But I think there's complexities there that we just haven't uncovered. Well, you're a brave guy. Most won't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're quite right. Well, we, have, we have a tendency towards arrogance. We think we know a lot. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's probably, probably a good example is what's happened in physics, you know. I mean, uh, a century ago, physicists thought that they had figured it all out. They had just a couple of little things they hadn't quite worked out yet. <laughs> when, they, when they worked out those couple of little things, that opened up quantum physics and changed the whole world. <laughs> so, you know, we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to just uh, wrap up, Richard, by uh, seeding the idea that a vaccine is a is a very different way of an organism, a dog, a cat, a person, seeing or um, having first clues about an invader. Mm-hmm. Would you just touch on that briefly and yeah, how the, that compares? Yeah, the, the idea there is... Um, in, in, in going back to what I was just talking about, about how the immune system has a primary defense mechanism and the, then the secondary, if you will, it's called the adaptive system, um, comes in that produces antibodies and these other cells that go in and kill off the virus infected and so on. Okay, so that... The immunologists say that the primary system, the ones where I said the cells are behind the tissue lining, you know, and so on, they run the whole Mm -hmm. show. They're in charge of it. They tell the other cells what to do. Uh So um, what's happened then with the people that are pushing vaccines is they're basically bypassing all of that. They're ignoring all of that whole mechanism and saying, all we're interested in is that part that produces antibodies. All the rest of it can go to hell. All I want to do <laughs> is make antibodies. So they figure wow. out a way to try to force the body to do that. And and we could talk. We you know we could talk more in detail about how that's a problem. But you know the the artificial ways they try to do that um, out of out of the arrogance <laughs> that we think we know <laughs> how to do this sometimes actually messes things up. It creates problems. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly. Mm-hmm considering that they're ignoring almost the entire mechanism, right? Wow. Not working wow. Not yeah. working with it, not working with the natural mechanism, but coming in with some artificial way they think is better. Right. You see the problem? Yes, yes. So if I'm hearing you right, what, what we've done basically is bypassed the, the primary system entirely when we pick up the skin and the scruff of the neck and just say, here you go. We're going to squirt some viruses in under your skin. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. want me to, do you want me to give that analogy I mentioned before or is it not, we're out of time? Please. Yeah, please go ahead. So the analogy, Let's wrap up with the analogy that. I give some time to make it understandable <clears throat> is, and what uh, an analogy I mean to what we were just talking about, how there is a, a primary defense and the different levels after that until finally you get to the the place where uh, the the last thing is called into, uh, you know, the, the antibody and killer cells and so on are called into effect. So the analogy is like, imagine a young woman who gets this house 
and she wants to make sure it's really secure. So she builds a little wall around the outside yard. She has some uh, watchdogs, you know, that she she has there to keep people out of the yard. Um, She has um, alarms on the windows and doors, locked doors, safety locks, locks on, you know, um, security alarms on the windows if anybody opened a window and so on. So she Mm -hmm. feels really secure, you know, because if somebody tried to break in, they'd be trying to first get over the wall, you know, and then run into these dogs and so on. You know, so it's just like the like the the ones that behind the lining of the intestine or whatever, right? It's similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the way it would happen. And of course, if she she's in her house, she would hear it. She'd hear the noise, hear the barking. She could look out the window and she could call the police and so on. Mm-hmm. So, what happens when uh, some of these modern methods of using a vaccine, where they inject it? directly into your blood within a few minutes, you know, it's into your bloodstream circulating in your body. And it didn't go Mm -hmm. through all these other mechanisms that we've talked about. The analogy would be like this woman who feels very secure in her house, one day wakes up and turns over and there's a guy in bed with her. Oh, God. Where the hell did you come from? Breached all the defenses somehow. There was no warning. There was nothing. There's a guy in the bedroom. So that's the way it is for the immune system. You see, the immune system is totally shocked by that. Where did it come from? There was no warning. I didn't get any yeah. signal. So I had that, no time to respond. No, and so what it does is it kind of panics. And sometimes it, st- it starts making mistakes, or it doesn't have a complete, it doesn't do the complete job because it never had everything given to it that it was supposed to have by these other mm-hmm. cells and so on. So I'm going kind of fast, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's I, I've I've often called it bells and whistles going off at that point because yeah. the, the 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 panic you talk about can then result in the immune system doing crazy things like attacking self or being wildly allergic to normal things like a flea bite or a bite of chicken, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, and part of that, of course, is what's in the vaccine because when this assault comes in suddenly without warning. And it gets very reactive to it. That's where sometimes you'll hear people say the vaccines cause more sickness. Well, that's because of what they're doing with it, you know, as I just described to you. And mm-hmm. they also there's a lot of stuff in the vaccine itself, which then um, is basically the same as your normal tissue. It's from cell cultures and so on. And so mm-hmm. when the immune system reacts in a panic to it, sometimes it reacts by making antibodies against its own tissues. Mm-hmm. Definitely a, a scary thought and happens all too regularly. Yeah, that, that does. It does. And, and uh, it, it happens enough and it was, it's known that it happened enough that uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure you know that maybe other people listening don't, that it was, it's been recognized over the last, <coughs> excuse me, couple hundred years or so when how I guess it's probably been almost that long that vaccines vaccines were first produced that there are a lot of problems with the vaccines a lot of sickness following not always but you know there's enough of it observed that it was an issue people objecting to them and so uh, I think it was 1964 I may have the year wrong but somewhere around then um, basically put it in a nutshell the vaccine manufacturers um, didn't want to make them anymore. There's just too many people coming back at them with, you know, lawsuits and 
complaints and things. So right. the government stepped in and said, okay, we want the vaccines, so we're going to exempt you from any legal responsibility. And they passed 1986. Was it 1986. 1986. Yes. You know better than I. And so, yeah, so then they passed that law that now you can't sue a vaccine company. And, yeah, uh, and, amazing. Uh, yeah, but, and they do that because they know how much sickness it could cause. That's why they have that law. Exactly. It's really exactly. quite obvious, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's no secret. Yeah, yeah. No secret. <laughs> Andy Wakefield has a new movie out called 1986, The Act. Oh, yeah. And it's all about that that act. Yeah. And it's it's available. If you search him out, you can, you can see it online. Yeah. Okay. Richard, this has been hugely interesting. And I know we could go on for hours, but I'll I'll put a bookmark here and ask if you would consider coming back to talk more about these things in the future. Sure. I think Absolutely. It's important for Great. Us to understand as much as we can. I know it's complicated, but I think considering the threat, I'm, if I put use that word, the threat of mandatory vaccines, we should really know about this. Exactly. I think the more educated we are, the more we can take a stand against such a thing and just even understand within our own pet population that more is definitely not better when we're talking about vaccines and Uh supporting supporting the immune system as as best we can is going to be far more productive. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Thank you so much for attending. And Richard, thanks so very much for attending and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Where can people find you online? Oh, well, I have a Facebook page that's still going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they haven't shut you down yet. No, well, no, they haven't. Um, and uh, I've had a couple of posts blocked. But anyway, uh, well, I mean, sometimes I, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. All I have. 5,000 friends on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. And then there's my website, drpitcairn.com. It's just one word, drpitcairn is one word, uh, .com. Okay. Yeah. And where I found you early on, I think before I ever met you, was your book. So tell us where people can find that, what the title is. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a long title. It's Dr. Pitcairn's Complete Guide to natural health for dogs and cats. And uh, it's in the fourth edition now. And uh, it's described on our, my website, if you go there. So uh, I should probably should spell it for people. Um, Dr. Pickner is DR for doctor, and then P as in Peter, IT as in Tom, C-A-I-R-N.com. So if you go Perfect. there, you'll see a menu. It says books, and you can just go look at the book. And it's also on Amazon. It's in Barnes and Noble and places like that. So beautiful. Yeah, that's what I cut my teeth on for for natural nutrition back when I was making the transition from conventional practice to holistic practice. So mm-hmm. recommend that to everyone. Yeah, we put a lot of research into it, a lot of study. I mean, we're we're you know it. Not that it necessarily everything's absolutely perfect, but you know we put a lot of work to try to make it as best we could. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Richard. Okay, thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Who knew that we had two football fields worth of linings to our bodies and that just on the other side of those linings is this whole army of millions of natural killer cells. One of the reasons I got interested in transfer factors years ago was the fact that it 
boosted those natural killer cells functions by many fold, about 400 and some fold when they were combined with medicinal mushrooms, for instance. You can find our transfer factor product made for dogs called Canine Immune Complete that does combine these two and several other cofactors on vitalpethealth.com. If you'd like to help share the Vital Animal Podcast, the easiest way you can do that is to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.